This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. For July 28th, 2022, it's the Did You Apologize to Mansion Yet edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS News in New York. Hello, John. Hello, David. And back from travels hither and yon, everywhere and nowhere, to the back of beyond, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School, who's back in New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello. Since I was out of the country, I felt like an expat using the GabFest to stay abreast of America while I was away. And it worked really well. Wow. That's interesting. You use the GabFest to stay abreast while you're... I do not use it when I'm traveling. I thought it was great. Well, you should listen when you're not on the show. It's a good thing to do. Kind of, you know, learn something. This week, will Joe Manchin's agreement with Democrats save the party, rescue the Biden presidency, and usher in a thousand years of peace and prosperity? Then the January 6th investigation at the Justice Department seems to be closing in on Trump. Could the former president be prosecuted? What stands in the way? Then the most dangerous road for pedestrians in the United States is a stretch of US-19 on the Gulf Coast of Florida. We're going to talk to Marin Kogan of Vox, who visited that stretch of road, about her fascinating piece about why it's so dangerous and whether it can be fixed. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. Comes news uh, late on Wednesday that Build Back Better is dead, but long live Build Back Better or Build Back Smaller or the Inflation Reduction Act. John, Joe Manchin says he and the Democrats, by which I guess he means Chuck Schumer, President Biden, presumably Nancy Pelosi, have an agreement on a reconciliation bill that can be passed with 50 votes that would do what? So what's in the bill is $433 billion worth of spending, which is has some important provisions. The healthcare ones are that 13 million Americans will see their subsidies they get for the Affordable Care Act those won't increase. So that will continue uh, for the next three years. Um, There will also be uh, some changes in the way Medicare um, handles drug prices. They will now be able to negotiate for um, cheaper drug prices as a part of Medicare, which is which is huge. And it also caps out of pocket costs for prescription drugs um, at $2,000. So those are two really important healthcare uh, elements of the provision. The $370 billion in climate um, change and clean energy uh, production includes, um, which would be, I think, the largest piece of legislation related to climate change ever. Um, It basically provides billions of dollars in rebates to make your home greener, um, tax credits and investment tax credits for companies that get greener or make stuff that makes the world greener. Um, You get some... um, Tax credits if you buy solar panels, batteries, technology that um, uh, discourages emissions. There's also relief in there for people who buy electric vehicles. Oh, and it's other important thing is there's um, $300 billion in deficit reduction, which is why it has this amusingly euphemistic name. And that mostly comes from two things, a minimum tax for corporations of 15% um, and a tightening of the carried interest loophole. Um, not a closure, which is a lot of coverage has called it, closing the carried interest loophole. That essentially allows investment managers 
to have their salary taxed as capital gains instead of income, uh, which means it can be taxed at 20% instead of 37%. It's been this weird thing that's lived on, even though Trump wanted to get rid of it. And uh, anyway, it's it's now under threat again. And that's where they get some of this revenue, which is what allows Manchin to call it a um, an inflation um, uh, bill uh, because there will it will reduce the um, it will reduce the deficit. When you look at the hurdles in front of it, what are the hurdles? So we have a, a, a deal on paper, paper, but you know the the ducks will start to nibble at the carried interest. The corporations will start to nibble at the corporate tax. Uh, Republicans will start to nibble at Kristen Cinema. What what are the possible obstacles to this becoming an actual law? Some of the obstacles include. Um, Cinema, uh, who if she says no to some provision, um, I mean, in theory, could tank the whole bill, or it will unwind something that Mansion wouldn't like, and you'd have to go back to the um, to the drawing board. Um, so that's one thing that could the parliamentarian, because this is passing through reconciliation, it has to meet the budget requirements that were put in place um, in order to sort of forced Senate to um, maintain deficit reduction. There's COVID among the Democratic senators, and you need all 50 of them to be there. I think then there's some um, cross-branch issues, which is that I guess there's some possibility progressives in the House would balk. I don't think so in the end. That it, I mean, they'll balk, but is at the end going to threaten it? I don't probably don't think so. Um, and there's some connective tissue to this semiconductor bill that passed the Senate um, that Republicans in the House, now that they've seen that this reconciliation package might go through, are all going to vote against the semiconductor legislation, which means Pelosi will have to pass it with all Democratic votes, which means she's got a thin margin. If she loses some some Democrats on that, she might not be able to pass this important priority for the president. I think that probably gets worked out, too. But there's a lot of sort of management of the liberals that Pelosi's going to have to do to make this go forward. Emily, with this prospective legislation, with the prospective passage of the CHIPS Act, with the prospective possibility of a protection of marriage equality, this would be a bunch of medium-sized wins for Democrats. How helpful do you think this stuff might be for Democrats politically come November, given that there is still all this economic bad news, given that the same day as Manchin's announcement, the Fed raised interest rates another 0.75 and that we're probably on the verge of a recession? I would say necessary, but not sufficient. I mean, I think it's just crucial for the Democrats to be able to say that they accomplished some things, that there's a reason to keep them in power. They have these, um, you know, really... I think more than medium-sized um, accomplishments to point to. I mean, this is the largest climate change bill we've had in the country. Our country has obviously played this leading role in carbon emissions. Um, so it's our responsibility to address it. I actually think it's totally gimmicky, but smart to call it the Inflation Reduction Act. Yes, agreed. And, you know, the semiconductor bill, the fact that it's bipartisan is a kind of win for Democrats um, on its own because it shows that actually like this dream of the parties working together, which, you know, sometimes I mean, certainly Biden talked about it during the campaign is actually possible to accomplish, at least in this particular area of industrial policy. It would be amazing if um there would be protections for same-sex marriage in the federal in federal law in a way that this very conservative Supreme Court presumably will not be able to touch. Uh, so I think that's like some real 
important developments on fronts that are popular that voters care about. Now, are they going to take care of people's concerns about inflation and or looming recession? I don't think so. Maybe they're enough to make the difference in a few really close elections, and maybe they'll put Biden or whoever runs for president, having listened to your segment, um, suggesting that he won't or shouldn't be the candidate um, in 2024, although I realize that's a long way away. How close is this deal to what Manchin wanted, Low these, like, I don't know, nine and more months ago? Well, I think some people would answer, nobody ever knew what Manchin wanted. <laughs> um it is, well, there's that like scribble down on a napkin deal with Schumer thing. Right. This isn't that. I think the operative question is, wh- how close is it to what Schumer wanted? I mean, so it doesn't include, you know, any of the family medical leave, elder care, child care, any of the original stuff in Build Back Better. But it does include um, the taxes, um, the tax piece, which which was weird because Manchin was always on board with a tax. He was fine with you know, quote unquote, taxing the rich. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the show. It made his comments about inflation weird because if you're taxing the rich, presumably you're reducing the deficit. And as a result of doing that, you are affecting inflation. So you can't use inflation as a reason not to vote for something that taxes the rich. So that was inconsistent. So um, I think in the end, we'll, when we look at the energy provisions, there's some stuff about making it more costly to emit methane and other things. And I don't know how much some very smart person on you know the environment will know what kind of carves out carve outs and things were done that don't affect West Virginia that we can then say okay we we see this was authored in a way to protect protect mansion i mean obviously that pipeline he wants to go through west virginia is a is something that promotes the production of gas um so that's that's one thing he wanted but that's not in the bill so um I guess, Emily, the short answer to your question is the deficit reduction that's in it. Oh, there's one other aspect of deficit reduction in addition to the carried interest loophole and the minimum tax is that the IRS gets more money to go after tax cheats. So that's all stuff to make the the inflation picture a little brighter. John, closing on this, you you were talking a few minutes ago about the, the potential obstacles. Can you just talk about two things quickly? One, how rapidly could the Democrats move on this if they're able to move? That's number one. And number two, what kind of payback do you think Republicans will seek to uh, exact for getting getting uh, beaten if they end up getting beaten? Assuming they get cinema on board with this, and I don't think they're really, there's really any other major hurdle. Um, they can get it done by next week. Republicans, as of Thursday morning, there was reporting that Republicans are bailing on burn pit legislation. So the burn pit legislation, um, which is, which is um, you know, was a massively bipartisan legislation to help basically veterans um, who were exposed to um, harmful um, and destructive chemicals as a result of um, working near burn pits, um, and uh, which is um, being exposed to Agent Orange. Um, the, that was passed and they had to f- tweak something in the legislation uh, from a technical matter, and now there's some indication on Thursday morning that the that Republicans are are withholding their vote because of this. Um, they're basically doing on burn pits what McConnell had pledged to do on the semiconductor chips legislation, um, which is not vote for it. Um, 
as a basically as penalty, David, for for this reconciliation bill. Um, that seems to be the way things uh, what I read Thursday morning. But, um, you know, I worry that this will shift over time. But that's that. And they will come up with other ways to try to punish, um, you know, Democrats for doing this. But on the other hand, in his quiet moments, Mitch McConnell uh, probably recognizes some of his own um, legislative skill in in this if this is what happens. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. Of course, you can become a member by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. We have a great bonus segment today. It's going to be a Bazelon special, always the best kind. We're going to talk about the proposed reforms to the Electoral Count Act. And we're going to dig deep on what might happen. Another Joe Manchin another Joe Manchin uh, legislative activity. Some, he's had a very busy summer, that Joe Manchin. The January 6th committee has taken a summer hiatus. It has been renewed for a second season in September, but there is plenty of new content for fans and stands. Notably this week came news that the Department of Justice is clearly nosing around President Trump for potential crimes. There are leaks seemingly from lawyers or from clients, who their clients who are talking to grand juries, indicating that DOJ prosecutors are very curious about what President Trump's role was in in various parts of this scheme to uh, overturn the election results. And also, and let's start with this, the remarkable New York Times story, Emily, about the, uh, again, to use the word scheme, the scheme to create fake electors, these fake electors who could be a pretext for overturning the election. In one of those don't put the conspiracy in writing guys situations. Don't use emojis, at least. The people coming up with the scheme literally called them fake electors. And then we're like, oh, maybe we should call them alternate electors. Ha ha ha. Emoji wink. Uh, what was this? What was the scheme? Why is the news about it important? What was the potential? Uh, you know, what's revelatory about that? I mean, this is a group of lawyers. They weren't within the administration, but they were clearly channeling to Rudy Giuliani and to Mark Meadows. And they were doing exactly what you said, talking about how to get fake electors together. At one point, they mentioned the problem that because of COVID, their fake electors wouldn't be able to meet in the Michigan State House, which was a requirement under Michigan law. I mean, they were really getting into the kind of nitty gritty here of how to do this. And I don't know, it's you read these emails and you think, do these people appreciate at all that we have a democracy? And they were talking about substituting people who were not elected in place of the people who were elected so that they could reverse the will of the people um, and report the wrong election results. It's almost like they were kind of giddy with the scheming. And also, I just got the sense that, you know, this is just sort of the, a part of Trump world in which you're in your bubble and any kind of ends justify the means. And you just like forget all about things like democracy and rule of law. That's the most pernicious part of of what's behind these hearings is the fact that for a lot of people, the, the rioters didn't go far enough, that the that Democrats have been described and continue to be described in such apocalyptic terms and all of the ruin that they are taking to American life that basically all bets are off. There are these stories that people are pointing out that one of the uh, prerequisites for all this scheming and all this manipulation is the Electoral College. So without the Electoral College, none of this would really matter very much. The popular vote is just much harder to manipulate in a country like the U.S. And the fact that 
that we have these electors, this sort of intermediary stage between the voters and and the election makes uh, makes mischief possible in ways that it's not really possible in countries that have popular election. They have different forms of mischief in those countries, but but all the ones that the Trump folks have come up with were premised on sorts of legal chicanery and manipulation of this 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 middle stage of the process and the middle stage of the process that's no longer bears any resemblance to its original design, which was hysterically when Hamilton was selling the constitution, he said, it's the electoral college that will ensure we have virtuous leaders because it's got this really cool function. All the electors will be virtuous and care about the proper constitution of a chief executive. And they will put their extraordinary brain power towards picking the person who is most qualified including this had this important thing called virtue as a part of their character. Um, and that that was the reason to, to vote for the constitution. He argued the electoral college was the sig- single thing that guaranteed that this was going to bring virtuous uh, presidents. Couldn't you have the electoral college? I mean, I hate the electoral college, but couldn't you have it without the electors? You could just have like, you certify the vote, this whole separate stage this it just creates this clunky machinery no but the problem is that you have within each state this potential you have 50 points of manipulation to manipulate the result in any close individual state and you have the state government with the capacity to interfere whereas if you just say it's like the total amount in the country the five or ten thousand votes that differ you have a difference of in pennsylvania don't make a difference this amusing fake electors foolishness is proof of how hard it is to actually conspire that the trump fantasy about a stolen election requires and we've said it before but the bears requires extraordinary um collaboration among people who never said a peep and still haven't said a peep about this coordinated effort to steal the election whereas the trump coordinated effort to try to steal the election has had thousands of of mistakes and bungles and and which is the nature of human behavior. Um, And so in the shambolic way in which the deadly serious but shambolic way in which the Trump effort tried to overthrow the election went by, it it reminds you that, you know, quiet conspiracies are really hard to pull off. Good point. Emily. So let's turn to this question of uh, the potential investigation into Trump by the Department of Justice. What did you make of the stories that grand juries are questioning witnesses, including Mike Pence associates, about Trump and his involvement? And what I, I've absolutely lost track of all the potential crimes he could be charged with. So remind us at what the potential crimes are. Well, I mean, that it, it, it is a list. I mean, so first of all, I think these stories are pretty significant. Um, They seem to be sourced um, from, you know, witnesses or defense lawyers. Now I'm channeling um, our friend Ben Wittes, who wrote a smart Twitter thread about this. And the big question looming over the Justice Department has been whether they are willing and interested and able to reach Trump's role um, in a variety of ways to answer your second question. And it seems from these reports that the answer is yes. I mean, that's very different from actually investigating the president directly. It's far different from an indictment. But they're not uh, leaving that out of the picture, right? I mean, it seems like when 
the attorney general, Merrick Garland, said the other day that nobody is um, above the rule of law. And then a reporter said, is, does that include Trump? And he got slightly testy and basically said, I'm just going to repeat what I just said. It seems like at least if we believe these reports, there's some evidence for that, which, of course, is exactly as it should be, because it is super important for the president, for any president not to be above the rule of law. In terms of various crimes, I mean, there's this very interesting investigation going on in, in Georgia about Trump's call to um, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, you know, looking for non-existent votes to overturn that election. That is a very good fit with state law about, um, you know, the crime of interfering with an election. Then there are the events on January 6th and leading up to January 6th. I mean, maybe the hardest um, count would be some kind of like, you know, criminal incitement count um, for the speech that um, Trump gave before January 6th that has lots of First Amendment protections in it. But then there's just interfering with um, Congress trying to certify the election, obstructing a congressional proceeding. And then there's this broader idea of defrauding the United States, which could be kind of more of a grab bag of various kinds of conduct. Um, And I'm sure there are things I'm leaving out as I catalog this, because there are just a lot of different fingers of this probe that's going on. Right. I mean, it's clear that it is, if he did what he's accused of, it's utterly treasonous behavior towards the constitution of the united states and yet it's also kind of hard to say it's not like a homicide it's not like oh yes he's murdered this person in this way it's 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 a set of behaviors which taken together are clearly designed designed to subvert the the election and uh go against the will of the the people and to end run the constitution in some ways and so that ought to be a crime but yet figuring out what the crime is seems tricky. That's why you need impeachment. I mean, I think there are various statutes that this would fit under. And, you know, we've been talking for months about criminal intent and can prosecutors prove that Trump knew he was setting out to prevent Congress from certifying the election, overturn the results, etc. I mean, I feel like the January 6th committee has been kind of genius at showing that there's every reason to think that he probably did have criminal intent. And then there's also you know, the very well-documented events after the rioting started in which he had this legal duty to try to stop what was going on, and he did not. And uh, we know about the entreaties he was receiving from people around him, including Ivanka Trump. Like, that's, you know, that seems stuff seems pretty solid and um, pretty indicative of his state of mind. I have two thoughts. One is one from David French, which is that if there isn't a prosecution, that basically what you end up doing is is deciding that presidents are held to a lower standard of criminal behavior than almost any other American citizen. That results from this if you don't, if if something more doesn't happen. And then in terms of what's happening in the in the committee in the committee hearings, I thought what was most striking about the last th- Thursday's testimony was it was the it wasn't so much what White House officials testified to, which was basically Donald Trump doing nothing, fulfilling none of his obligations, and in fact working to pour gasoline on the fire. It was that what he wasn't doing that is so important. And the reason that's interesting to me is that none of his his defenders on every other point can say, "Oh, well, you know, he was he wasn't inciting the crowd. He told them to to go peacefully," which is not a serious argument, but it is um, nevertheless something you can offer. The absolute 
inability to offer a single thing that he did once he knew that the rioting was taking place. There's nobody can come forward with anything he did, not one thin fibrillation to stop the, the or even care. And he was getting people calling him on the phone saying, help us. We're in the building. They're attacking. Help us. And he did and nothing. And he was refusing. He, and Meadows was saying the president's yeah, not interested he, in this. The Pentagon called. And his lawyer had to take the call because he didn't want to talk to the Pentagon. Mike Pence had to. And the vice president yeah. was on the phone, which is like totally not how the constitutional line of right. chain of command was and supposed so to be And so it working. changes the uh, directional defense of the president. You know, you can't, I mean, you can distract, but no, but, but the fact that nobody will defend him by saying, oh, no, he was doing this. The closest they can do is say three days before he mumbled something to Nancy Pelosi about the National Guard, of which there is no record. And the acting Secretary of Defense says, no, there was no order under oath. Under oath, he said this. He didn't say this on Sean Hannity. He said something else. But under oath, he said there was no order from the president. But the best defense they can make is that three days before the rioting started, he might have said something about the the National Guard. Again, there's no evidence of that. But if you're a fire chief, (laughs) and the best you can say is three days before the fire went up that you were standing in front of, you mumbled something about hoses is not a super strong defense. Don't forget that he threw his lunch at the wall. That was really important. I cannot decide if the words or the pictures in Marin Kogan's amazing news stories for Vox are more gripping and terrifying. The deadliest road in America is Marin's story of a stretch of US-19, a road along the Florida Gulf Coast that has the dismal distinction of being the most dangerous place to be a pedestrian in the United States. Marin's story details the confluence of circumstances, bad design, ambiguous purpose, demographics that make it a hellscape for pedestrians. And the photos of the road, these eight lanes of traffic punctuated very occasionally by a stoplight, are scarier than even a Jordan Peele movie looks to be. Marin, welcome to the GabFest. Can you describe, start by describing US-19 to us and then start by telling us the numbers. How dangerous is it and why is it so dangerous? Yeah, so US-19 looks like a lot of roads all across the US. It is multiple lanes going each direction with turn lanes on either side. So at many intersections, you're looking at eight or nine lanes. The speed limits are 45 to 55 miles an hour and there are commercial businesses pretty much lining this entire road. So um, essentially what you have is a highway with lots of commercial development on either side, lots of um, cars turning, lots of cars moving at very high speeds, and then also you have lots of people who need to walk the road. But because the road is, is so unfriendly to pedestrians, sometimes the crosswalks are a mile or more apart. So what you often see is people, you know, if they're trying to get across the street to a business on the other side, they might have to walk a mile or more to cross safely. And so it creates this really dangerous conditions for pedestrians um, trying to navigate the space. And, you know, in terms of deadliness, um, pedestrian fatalities are on the rise in this country. And this is something that I've sort of been watching happen over the last few years. It it really took off during the pandemic. 
And last year, there was a really interesting study published by some researchers who took um, all of the government's data on pedestrian fatalities from 2000 to 2016, and they tried to identify hotspots. So these are 1,000-meter stretches of road where six or more people have died over two different eight-year periods. And they identified 60 of the hotspots across the country. They're in New York. They're in L.A. They're in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They're everywhere. They're in Georgia. But seven of those hotspots were in this single stretch of road in this single county. Um, it was really striking, even to the researchers who expected to find some overlap. So this is a just a truly very deadly road and a very deadly place for pedestrians. I love this term of strode. Um, that you used, which I think really gets at the idea that the roads were created for one thing, even though all these businesses have appeared and and um, turned them into something else. And it's that failed conflict of dual functionality that's at the heart of this problem. Anyway, explain what a strode is. Yeah, I love the term strode too. And I think if this piece does nothing else but introduce people to that concept, it will have been successful. So I totally dropped that at a party last night. I, t- I talked to people <laughs> about strodes all party long. So it's, sp- it's spreading. It's <laughs> yeah, good, good. Yeah. Um, so one of my editors said that the term strode has become an intrusive thought for her. Like she can't stop thinking about it because it is, you will see these in your community. Like, uh, you know, any listener, if they want to go out and look, they will find these um, strodes in their community. So strode is a term um, coined by this guy, Chuck Marone, who was a professional traffic engineer for many years and has since become a critic of his profession. And he says, if you think of, if you think of a road, A road is designed to get people from point A to point B at a high speed. So a road, you want to have cars moving quickly and efficiently through the space. They tend to be wide open, multi-lane. If you think of a freeway, a freeway is a good example of a road. You're just trying to get from point A to point B as efficiently as possible. And so you have all the traffic moving in one direction. It's high speed, it's efficient, and it's clear on either side so that if there is a driver error, they're not going to crash into a person, a tree, a business, something else. Now, a street is a place. A street is not just about getting from point A to point B. A street is a place. If you think about, we all have these in our communities. It's a place where people live, they shop, they dine, um, they play, they commune. And on a street, you really want to have the traffic be very slow so that pedestrians can access the space safely. And so that the people driving through aren't just plowing through, they're interacting with the community around them. A strode is trying to do both things. And it's doing neither of them well. So it's multi-lanes, high speed, lots of traffic and congestion, lots of businesses on either side that pedestrians need to access. And so what you're doing is you're creating infinite possibilities for conflict between cars and between cars and people. And, and that is one thing that I think I really want people to take away from this because some people are like, well, it's just Florida, you know, <laughs> Florida. It's actually not Florida. This is a this is a national issue. And, you know, the second deadliest hotspot on this uh, study that I looked at is is in Maryland. So these things are all over. You will see them everywhere. Where in Maryland? Uh, Langley Park. It's suburban D.C., essentially. So and and you guys have seen these things in our community. They're everywhere. Two questions. One, Florida. Right. So um does that add anything at all? And then the second thing is the fact that we're just getting, we're more dangerous. Driving is more dangerous. Cars are bigger. People are more reckless. And particularly during the, during COVID, how much of it is that uh, is affected by that? The fact that, that we're just 
more dangerous drivers. There's something special about Florida, I think, although Florida is also at the same time representative. One of the one of the experts I spoke to about this said is the way to think about Florida is as a leading edge of a lot of national trends because there's so much growth and development. So many people are moving to Florida and because a lot of that development is more recent, you know, in the last 50, 60 years, you tend to see trends happen there faster than they do in the rest of the country. But certainly what is going on in Florida is matched um, by what's going on nationally. So pedestrian fatalities were on the rise for the for the last decade already. And then the pandemic, you know, really sort of made the pedestrian fatality soar. Like once the pandemic started, we started seeing really alarming numbers of pedestrian fatalities. And last year, I think it was something like 7,400 pedestrians were killed on U.S. streets and roads, and that's the highest number in 40 years. So, you know, this idea that it's it's people driving more recklessly, I have heard that. I think, you know, my my anecdotal you know, observations seem to suggest that something is going on. But the most compelling theory from experts I talked to, and the one I think is correct, is that actually what happened with the pandemic is um, it disrupted the normal traffic patterns. It it brought down a lot of the peak time congestion. And so congestion, we all think of congestion as an awful thing. It's very annoying. But actually, congestion was one of the best traffic calming measures that we have. So what happened was when you disrupted all of these peak commuting times, it made the roads much more open. And the roads are designed in a way to signal to drivers, like, drive really fast. And the best thing preventing you from driving really fast and killing someone is when you have a bunch of cars in front of you, right? So removing that congestion actually just exposed the dangerous designs that we already had. And, and I, I also want to add, I don't think it's just the design issue. It is the design issue. It's also the fact that um, trucks and SUVs have become a much larger share of the market in the last 20 years, and they're getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's a simple fact that those bigger vehicles are much deadlier to people outside vehicles than smaller cars and sedans are. Baron, this is definitely not an unfixable problem. There are ways to make US-19 safer and roads like US-19. So what are those ways? So there are a couple different theories about what would be the best thing to do. If you talk to someone like Chuck Marone, who came up with this concept of a strode, his theory is that we basically need to deprogram them. So rather than having traffic engineers decide what a what a road should look like, and they're doing it based on these standards that have sort of always treated car as king, you should actually have local officials deciding what a given street is going to be. So if we want this to be a street, we need to narrow the lanes, we need to slow down traffic, we need to do a bunch of traffic calming measures, and we need to make it much, much safer for pedestrians. Chuck would say the flip side of that is if we decide that it should be a road, we need to cut off all these access points to all the commercial businesses. It's sprawl. We're talking about sprawl, right? Sprawl is incredibly deadly and hostile to people who aren't in cars. It, it almost necessitates that you drive. So he's like, all right, if this is going to be a road, we want it to get people from point A to point B. Don't make it a place where everyone is turning every 500 feet. Um, and don't make it like a place where we're expecting people to walk. Come up with other avenues for people to walk. Um, the people who work in the sort of safety advocacy space would say basically that you just you need to go the other direction like there's no there's no reason why we need nine lanes on us 19 and that was something i noticed is like uh, several times when i was driving and it wasn't peak traffic there 
the road was wide open and it was really interesting to drive the road and then walk the road. So I would drive the road and um, I would sort of take notes on my recorder about what I was seeing and doing. And it, it's almost, it's soothing and sort of, it's just a wide open road, you know, and it, it, it's almost hard not to go fast because it's just designed for you to go fast. And then I walked the road to dinner one night and I was, you know, cursing myself the whole time because it was, hot and horrible and really difficult to cross and just totally unfriendly. Like you don't notice necessarily the danger if you're a driver and that's how most people are accessing that space. But if you're forced to access it as a pedestrian, which many people are and many people have to, it becomes very obvious that this road was not made for you. It seems like the the pedestrians are um, outweighed here by two powerful forces. One is all the businesses that want cars to have easy access zooming in and out of their parking lots. And the second is all the people zooming in their cars who want to keep zooming in their cars. Um, Is that imbalance always going to put the pedestrian on the wrong side of this? Or is there some way that pedestrians can win at either the local or the, the larger level? Yeah, it's a really great question. I think pedestrians certainly are and have been the underdog in this fight. Um, And it's sort of ironic to talk about it as pedestrians versus drivers, because most of us are both, right? But it it is true that, I mean, this system is designed with cars in mind. And it is an unfortunate reality that, you know, the people who tend to be walking are often not walking because like, this is fun. I love walking on the side of a highway. They're walking because they don't have other options. Either they're unable to drive, they don't have a license, um, and they're, you know, they tend to be lower income. So a lot of these strodes identified in the study border low income neighborhoods. Certainly in Pasco County, there's a large population of low income and people experiencing homelessness, and that creates a lot more people on the road. And those people have less political power than you know, the car lobby and, um, and everyone who, you know, drives and and doesn't really think about driving as like a privilege or, or think about the way that they're driving might be contributing to some things that are socially harmful. So I do think that that is a big issue. The flip side of it is I do think that there has been a growing movement and a growing infrastructure of people pushing back on the status quo and saying that we really do need to think more about pedestrian and cyclist safety and that, you know, the number of people dying on our streets is not safe. It's not healthy. It's not normal. And that change is possible. I mean, I think about this a lot with Ralph Nader and unsafe at any speed. I mean, lots more people were dying in car crashes before um, this sort of driver safety and auto- automotive safety movement got started and, and seatbelts and other safety improvements worked. You know, a, number, a, a lot less people are dying in car crashes now than they were before. Like, it's possible to make these improvements for pedestrians, too. We just need to recognize that it's a problem and start valuing people who are not inside cars. Marin Kogan's article, The Deadliest Road in America, is in Vox. It is just it, it is your conversation starter for the month uh maren thanks for coming on the gabfest thanks so much for having me let us go to cocktail chatter uh emily what are you going to chatter about i'm going to double chatter since i was out if there is a gabfest listener who has not yet listened to or watched joni mitchell sing that was going to be my Folk double Festival. chatter too. good my second one <laughs> bring it yeah <laughs> we are predictable um 
you just have to watch that video. It is really just amazing. And I salute Brandy Carlisle, the singer who's been, I think, doing a lot to kind of um, continue Mitchell's legacy for just striking exactly the right balance between singing along and mostly just giving the spotlight to Joni Mitchell. And, you know, to see someone who is older, who has had health issues, whose voice has really changed in its timbre, um, perform after, I think, nine years um, with such vigor and obviously pleasure. Um, I just thought it was an amazing tribute to stardom and to aging and to music. My second chatter is about the Federal Trade Commission and the fact that it took a pretty aggressive step this week um, against Facebook. Facebook is trying to conquer the virtual reality market and was trying to buy a VR developer called Within, which makes some fitness app that Facebook was after. And the FTC is saying not so fast. And in some ways, this is kind of strange because it's a relatively small company in terms of value. On the other hand, what you clearly see here is that um, Lena Khan, who's at the FTC and is incredibly smart about the problems of monopoly and trying to prevent monopoly, remembers that letting Facebook buy WhatsApp and Instagram was a real mistake in terms of creating um, hugely concentrated um, force in the marketplace for one company over not just its own business, but related businesses. And so what you see here is the FTC kind of taking a proactive step to try to prevent that from happening. It'll be really interesting to see where this goes. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? My chatter is about the most wide ranging study of its kind. Um, 40 scientists helped gather and analyze 1600 voice recordings from 410 parents in six continents 18 languages from diverse communities of all different kinds, and they found that the most common language that connects all of us is parentese, which some of you may already know. This is not the first time this has ever been studied, but this is, I think, the widest ranging. That basically baby talk is connects. We all talk to babies essentially in the same way. And the way they tested this was by creating a game called Who's Listening that you could play online. 50,000 people... Um, uh, spoke in 199 languages from 187 countries, and participants were asked to determine whether a song or a passage of speech was being addressed to a baby or an adult. And the researchers found that basically listeners were able to tell that about 70%, with with 70% accuracy, when the sounds were aimed at babies than when they were, you know, not aimed at babies. So um, I just like the idea that there is some basic way in which all uh, humans are... Um, connected. So uh, anyway, I just like that in this time of division and strife and the feeling that we're all tied merely by fraying threads to the human community. If we all just talked like babies and behaved like babies, we'd all be fine. And my chatter is about puppy whoppies. Uh, I am chattering about the story which has fixated me, which has obsessed me, mostly because my girlfriend is completely obsessed with it. So there's this incredible story. There's a an animal testing facility or, or a facility which raised animals for pharmaceutical testing in Cumberland, Maryland, and they raised beagles, and, Cumberland, Virginia, excuse me, and they raised beagles. And uh, because of a series of investigations by various authorities, uh, a judge determined that this was an unsanitary, unsafe, inhumane facility. And 4,000 beagles have been rescued from this facility and they are now being distributed to uh 
animal welfare organizations around the country, a lot of them in the D.C. area because it's relatively near D.C. Um, and so there are there are thousands of adult beagles and hundreds and hundreds of beagle puppies that are now seeking homes. And they're just gazillions of applicants, including my girlfriend, for these uh, for these dogs to have a new home. And it's just um, like the, the social media videos of these puppies and dogs is, are unbelievably charming and heartrending. They've all been tattooed on the ear. They all have these number tattoos on their ears because they were being raised for research purposes. Um, and it's, it's just a, really a sad story, a happy story because they've all been rescued from what seems to have been pretty unpleasant life. Um, ambiguous, ambivalent story because of course we do need to test pharmaceuticals. They have to be tested and they use beagles because I guess beagles are docile and small and um, that is a sad that they're used. It's also good that we get medicines out of it. So it's a complicated issue, but of course you would want your beagle raised humanely. Um, anyway, it's, I strongly recommend checking out these social media feeds and looking at the beautiful beagles and this real, this fascinating story of their rescue. And if you have a line on a beagle puppy from the Invigo beagles, that you would like to deliver to my girlfriend, let me know. Cause she would be a great, she loves beagles. She's had beagles. She would be a great carer of a beagle pup. So, uh, you know, let me know about that. Listeners, you sent us chatters as well. Uh, you tweet them to us at, at slate GabFest, and you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. And this listener chatter, this week's listener chatter comes from Mark Allender. Hello everybody. This is Mark Allender from Cleveland, Ohio. And I wanted to draw your attention to an episode of the podcast, The Dollop, about Supreme Court Justice James Clark McReynolds, the worst Supreme Court justice in history. Not only was he backward in the opinions that he wrote, but he was just a miserable human being all around to everybody he knew, to everybody that he came in contact with. Um, for starters, he was... Wilson's attorney general, but he was such a miserable person to be around that to get him out of the AG's office, Wilson nominated him to the Supreme Court, where he sat for life. That's our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Shana Roth, our researchers, Bridget Dunlap. It's so nice to have the whole gang back together with Emily back. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet your chatter to us there or email it to us at gabfest at slate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Joe Manchin. Very busy, very, very busy these days. Uh, while you've been slacking around, he's been negotiating secretly with everyone he can negotiate with. And he and Susan Collins have a bill to reform the Electoral Count Act. And uh, we're going to talk about it now. This is a, Emily, what is the problem that this bill seeks to solve and how would it do it or not do it? So the problem here is an 1887 law called the Electoral Count Act, which is, it's just a mess. I mean, it's a mess in, all, in many of its details, and it creates these opportunities for chicanery in terms of um, 
all the steps it takes to certify a presidential election. There's just a lot of um, monkey business that um, unprincipled, particularly state officials, could engage in. These questions about, like, whether if there's a failed election, what that even means, what would happen. Um, And then, you know, given the events of January 6th, there's this new concern that it's not completely clear that the vice president's role in certifying the count is purely ministerial, meaning he just like sits there and presides and stamps it and he's not supposed to be exercising his or her discretion in any way. So the question has been, what do you do about all these things? And there are different schools of thought, different ways of fixing it. This um, Electoral Count Reform Act that Manchin and Collins and others have been working on takes what seems to be from the sort of law professor reaction a really good crack at a lot of it. Um, so some of the details, the, and I'm now um, cribbing from Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith in Lawfare. So the bill gives full effect to state laws that govern presidential elections that are in place on the date of the vote. This is important. This means that you can't have a state legislature decide after the vote, oh, we didn't mean it. Now we're going to declare we the legislature instead of we the people who the winner is. Um, It eliminates um, to every extent possible the tools that various state rogue actors have to disregard the results of those elections after the fact. So there are all these duties on that are imposed on state officials. There is a clear judicial review process. They got rid of that super unclear language about a failed election, really, really narrowed it down. Um, there are still criticisms of this particular run, but it just seems like it's really important that we just shore up and address these ambiguities um, and lack of clarity um, before the next election. It's like this kind of just weird weakness that um, we've allowed to exist in this incredibly important aspect of, of our democracy. All the weird weaknesses that have to be shored up because Donald Trump was constantly probing areas that really don't need to be shored up if people would just retain the, I mean, I'm not that these weaknesses don't need to be fixed, but it's just all the extra work that, you know, you have to do when somebody behaves in the way he did is really, it's, it's, it's extraordinary. Somebody should do, like run the numbers on how much extra effort and time have been spent in this kind of activity that was the result of his um, brand of mayhem. I agree. Although on the other hand, this law has been a terrible problem for such a long time. And like, in a sense, we got really lucky because we had the dress rehearsal that actually got people to focus on it. I mean, you know, the law professors have been writing about this for years, never were able to get the attention of Congress to the degree that it has taken to really draft legislation and potentially get it passed. So in a weird way, I guess we have former President Trump to thank for that. Emily, how does how do the proposed forms run into conflict or, or or not with the feeling that the Supreme Court is going to create this independent state legislature doctrine where the state legislatures are going to have full authority over federal elections in their state. And here you have the, the federal government or Congress uh, trying to pass a law which would control how those state legislatures act in certifying and, and running their elections. I mean, isn't, aren't those things in, in contradiction with each other? I don't 
think so. I mean, I the, the Constitution clearly gives Congress power as well as states over some aspects of the time, place, and manner of choosing electors. And I think it's pretty clear this bill is constitutional and that, yes, there are these separate questions about state authority over the steps that lead up to choosing the electors, right? Like how your um, election is administered. Do you have early voting? When can mail ballots come back? Um, Lots of other things like that. But I think the idea that, you know, Congress can say what this part of the picture looks like should hold up. We'll see. But I think so. And presumably this point that that the election has to be decided based on terms that are set by election day that you can't make rules retroactively to, to, to change the result doesn't prevent legislators legislatures from doing what we've already seen in a bunch of red states changing the rules about elections before election day to hopefully favor or presumably they think it will massively favor their side the way they're changing those rules so they can still continue to do that right Right. So, you know, for example, my colleague Dan Kaufman has a really good piece in The New Yorker this week about Wisconsin and all the ways in which, you know, can they have drop off boxes? Can people, family members, etc., help disabled people when they want to um, submit absentee ballots? Like all those kinds of ways of narrowing access to the ballot are still going to be up for grabs in the states. This law is not going to address any of that. It's not going to address voter suppression. And another thing which um, Rick Hazen, um, a law professor, has pointed out is that there's no requirement of creating a clear paper trail for a ballot, which Rick thinks is really important for the integrity of elections and protecting us against um, people overturning results. So there totally remain weaknesses here. Um, but in terms of solving this specific problem of you know the Electoral College, all its clunkiness, the various ways in which it just creates vulnerability, this is, seems like a step forward. So Manchin and Collins, or Collins has, there are nine Republican co-sponsors of this draft bill. They would need 10 to ensure that it doesn't get uh, filibuster, doesn't get stopped. Do you think that that's likely to happen? I have no idea. I mean, they're so close. And it's such a basic element of our democracy. I would really, really hope. I mean, honestly, I don't know if this bill is perfect. I'm sure there are things that could be fixed about it. But the concept of it, I know this is a fantasy, but all 100 senators should want to fix this. Like, who wants the democracy to be up in chaos, which is like totally possible based on the vulnerabilities in this law? It'll be a question whether, David, we you know, you asked earlier about the possible backlash to right. reconciliation. Right. You could imagine on same-sex marriage, on this, on other priorities um, that it, that Republicans could say, nope, sorry, you, we don't like what you did on this other thing, so we're not going to help you on this. I mean, I just got to say it will be supremely and potentially tragically irresponsible if that happens. Last question on this, Emily. This law also puts new responsibilities or new speedy responsibilities on federal courts. What would the courts have to do under these reforms and how is it different from what's happening now? They just have a clear um, role in judicial review. And, you know, to some degree, Bush versus Gore sort of set the table for that. 
this because, as you may or may not recall, um, the United States Supreme Court uh, decided that the Florida Supreme Court's interpretation of Florida election law was not good enough and sort of suggested that maybe, like, who cares what the state Supreme Court says about its state's election law, which was, like, weird. But, you know, the federal courts do have a role to play um, in, in hearing election challenges. And so... I think this provision should be fine. Look, it, if there was a you know, contested election, if this was something that was really going to determine the fate of the country, it's really hard to imagine the federal courts and particularly the Supreme Court staying out of it. All right. Thanks, Emily. Bye, Slate Plus.